This passage has a well-earned reputation as being one of the most difficult in the whole New Testament. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote this. He said, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. So we should approach it with humility this morning, and yet with reasonable confidence, because the divine author who inspired this text lives within us. So we are going to, as is our custom, stand together. So please stand with me. We'll read the text, and then we will ask that divine author for help as we study. This is a glorious, glorious passage of Scripture. 1 Peter 3 Verses 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to be worshiping this morning in in this place and together as as the body of Christ at Providence Bible Fellowship. We thank you, Father, that by your grace, it is the custom here to open your word and read it together and to hear it expounded week after week. And we are coming this morning to a very difficult text and we pray for your care for us and your help that you would help us to understand these things. That you would grant us not only to understand them, Lord, but to embrace what we find here. That we would be helped and encouraged by it. And that we would be moved to greater faithfulness and joy in the difficulties that are inherent in being elect exiles. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So the elect exile has a a glorious future, and and that that is all of us. We are elect exiles. We have a glorious future. Peter began this letter reminding us of that. We, We have been caused to be born again by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, being kept in heaven for us who are being kept by faith in the Lord. Okay, so we have this wonderful future ahead of us, and yet it is very easy to lose sight of that glorious future, 
given the suffering for doing good that is part and parcel of being an elect exile. We're, we're surrounded in this world by evildoers who seem to be winning as they bring all levels of mistreatment upon us as believers. And we, we might wonder occasionally as we are under the weight of mistreatment for being believers in Jesus Christ, we might wonder, what guarantee is there that we're going to be victorious? It certainly doesn't feel like we're victorious right now. Well, here is the guarantee. This, this passage gives it to us. It reminds us of the guarantee. The guarantee is we will be victorious because Christ has already been victorious. In the passage that we looked at last week, verses 13 through 17, we saw that because we are objects of God's grace, we should have no fear of suffering. In this text, verses 18 through 22, we see that Jesus has gone before us in this road from suffering to glory. And the fact that He has traveled that road before us should be a great comfort to us because His journey from suffering to glory has secured ours. Tom Schreiner says it this way, Believers have no need to fear that suffering is the last word, for they share the same destiny as their Lord, whose suffering is secured victory over all hostile powers. So though, the, though this text may seem obscure on, upon a first reading, it holds glorious things for us. And my prayer has been that as we leave this place this morning, we'll be encouraged in the Lord to stay the course as we suffer for the faith. There are three main points in this text detailing the Lord's road from suffering to glory. And as we trace that road, we'll deal, we'll deal with the interpretive challenges while trying to major on the purpose for the passage. Now, the, the first of these, these steps from the Lord's suffering to glory is this. Jesus suffered for our sins to bring us to God. Jesus suffered for our sins to bring us to God. So look at verse 18 with me again. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. So you and I, as elect exiles called to suffer for doing good, we're not being asked to do something unique. Jesus also suffered for doing good. So, so our suffering is like His in that sense. The blessed truth here is that His suffering led to glory. Ours will as well. That's the point that's being made through this passage. So our suffering is like His, and yet His suffering was utterly unique in that it was substitutionary. The text says the righteous for the unrighteous. The unrighteous being all of us. We have all sinned many times over. And our sin against God estranges us from God. It, it, it brings upon us His righteous displeasure. His wrath. It calls for our eternal suffering in hell. And that is the reason that the eternal Son came to the earth to live the life of a man. He came here to, to live perfectly under the law of God and to fulfill all the righteous requirement of God on our behalf. To obey in, in a way that none of us ever could have or would have. And to suffer God's wrath in our place. He suffered once for sins in the sense that He suffered to take away our sin. He, he took them from us 
took them upon himself and on the cross suffered the penalty for them as if he had committed those sins. He was perfectly righteous. He never sinned himself, but he was substituted for the unrighteous. He suffered in our place. So his suffering is unique in that sense, in in the sense that he was substituted for us. There's another sense in which his suffering is unique that I would like for us to think about just briefly this morning. Jesus suffered in a way that none of us will ever suffer. And and here it is. You, You and I, we have always known what it's like to suffer feelings of guilt because we have been sinning ever since we can remember. We have, we have always known what it feels like to, to be under the displeasure of a righteous judge. Jesus lived his entire life never feeling that. He only ever knew the glorious Son of his Father's pleasure. And in an instant, all the guilt of all of his people brought to bear on his pure and infinitely sensitive conscience. You and I can never know what that feels like. We know what our sin feels like. And, and to an extent, all of us have, have consciences that are seared to one sense or, 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 or to, one, to one extent or another. Jesus no, his, his conscience was perfectly sensitive. And he, he bore all of that sin at one time. That he might bring us to God. God, by, by pouring his wrath out on Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, he showed that he is perfectly just and simultaneously merciful. So our, our sin was transferred to Jesus. He suffered for it. Not even in the way that we would have suffered for it, but far more than we would have suffered for it because of His perfect conscience. His righteousness was transferred to us and we were rewarded for it. Therefore, we're forgiven and reconciled to God. Now, that, that, that phrase or that clause, that He might bring us to God, that is key in this passage because it's the whole point of what Peter is communicating here. We have been brought to God in that we've been reconciled through the blood of Christ, and yet we will be brought to God when we enter His eternal presence and glory. And the present text assures us that because of Christ's suffering on our behalf and His entrance into glory, our suffering will eventually lead to glory, the presence of God. So Christ will bring us to God. You can bank on it. Our triune God, He never leaves anything unfinished. He makes promises. He always keeps them. We have been reconciled to the Father by the death of the Son, and we await our entrance into His presence while suffering in this life. But while suffering in this life, we can be certain that He will finish what He started, and we can be certain of that because of what Christ has already accomplished. So Jesus' first step from suffering to glory was to die to bring us to God. The second is in your notes as well. By the power of the Spirit, He was resurrected and declared victory over demonic spirits. By the power of the Spirit, He was resurrected and declared victory over demonic spirits. 
So let's, let's look at the last part of verse 18. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Now, th- this, is, this is the first of the, the interpretational difficulties in this passage. Now, listen, there, there are two kinds of people in this world. They're grammar nerds, and there are people who think they have better things to do. And I pity those of you who think you have better things to do. And I say this with all sincerity. Grammar is beautiful. Grammar is the math of language. It's the the character of our orderly creator exhibited in human language. And I get excited about it. I realize that not everybody does, and so I'm careful to be selective about when and where to get into grammar as, as, as I preach here. But here's the thing with this passage. Grammatically, exegetically, theologically, it is complicated, and there's just no way around getting deep into the grammar of this passage in order to explain it. So if you're not a grammar person, I would just exhort you to buckle up, okay? Because we have to get into it. It is important. I'll try to make it as as painless as as possible. The best way to understand this phrase here at the end of of verse 18, or these couple of clauses, is being put to death in the flesh but made alive by the Spirit. I would say that that Spirit should be a capitalized Spirit. This is simply a reference to the death and resurrection of Jesus. The Greek word that's translated made alive here always is a reference to the Lord's bodily resurrection. So this isn't a reference to Christ being put to death bodily, but then an intermediate state of His Spirit being raised for those three days before His body was raised, made alive when a when applied to Christ in the New Testament, it is always a reference to His bodily resurrection. So this is His resurrection by the power of the Holy Spirit. We find several cross-references in the New Testament indicating that Christ was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'll give you just a couple of these. One is in Romans 1.4. He was declared the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. Spirit raised Christ with power. 1 Timothy 3.16 is another. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit is, is a reference to the resurrection. God the Spirit raised God the Son. Verse 19 in our text, verse 19, in which He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. What on earth is going on? A lot of random stuff here, it seems. Christ preaching to spirits in prison. Noah, what does Noah have to do with anything? Verse 21, he's going to get into baptism, which seems just as random. Is all of this just arbitrary stuff that, that Peter is pulling out of thin air? Maybe Peter is sleep deprived as he writes this and he's just throwing stuff into the text. Is that possible? No, rightly understood, it all makes perfect sense. It all makes perfect sense. So let's rightly understand it. And you can't without getting into the grammar. All right? The verse 19, there's a phrase in which, it begins with in which. The antecedent, and antecedent is just a fun grammar word, which means it means something that or, or what that thing refers to, okay? But it's more fun than saying what something refers to, okay? So the antecedent of the word which is the Holy Spirit at the end of verse 18. 
Jesus went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison in the Holy Spirit. Who are these spirits in prison? Some would say that they are people who lived on the earth during the days of Noah, while Noah was building the ark, and that Christ preached through Noah. Christ preached through Noah to humans on the earth during the days of Noah. A 10 years older version, or 10 years younger version of me, taught that very thing. The present day version disagrees with that 10 years younger version. Uh, which of those me's is right, you can decide. There are other ideas about who these spirits might be, but I'm not even going to get into those because they require us to believe that there is a second chance for salvation after you die. And because we interpret Scripture with Scripture, we can dismiss those out of hand because that's a completely unbiblical idea. Um, the majority view today, and the one which I agree with, is that these spirits mentioned are evil angels. They're, they're demonic spirits. After the Lord's resurrection... And on His way to the right hand of the Father, He proclaimed by the Holy Spirit victory and judgment over these demonic spirits. Well, let me just say here, this is, like, this is not even second tier stuff. This is like fourth tier stuff. So we can disagree on these things and still be friends, alright? So if you, if you have a different view, if you, if, you would hold, if you would agree with the 10 years younger version of me, let's hug afterwards, okay? We're still, we're still okay. But given that I've taught in the past that this is a reference to Christ preaching through Noah to humans during Noah's day. I'd like to give you the reasons why I rejected that view. Or first of all, why I held that view, and then what made me reject that view, and then give you other reasons why I've embraced a different view. All right. So first of all, why I held that view. A big reason that I held that view was that in 2 Peter, not 1 Peter, but 2 Peter, the apostle refers to Noah as a herald of righteousness. Or more literally, a preacher of righteousness. So that seemed to fit well with the idea of Christ preaching through Noah. Seems, seems to make sense. And a second reason, if you look, if you look at, at the clause in verse 20, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, I took that to modify not the verb closest to it, which is the act of obedience in verse 20, but the previous verb, the act of proclaiming in verse 19. So in my mind, it's easy to interpret. The preaching took place in the days of Noah. But there's a grammatical problem with that second reason that negates the first. All right? You don't typically jump over verbs like that in, in Greek. The, 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 the temporal clause is going to modify the nearest verb. So the temporal clause naturally modifies the act of disobedience, not the act of preaching. And when you understand that, it, it removes the certainty that the preaching took place in the days of Noah and there's no reason then to connect the statement about Noah as a herald of righteousness in 2 Peter to this text in 1 Peter. So, my reasons for holding that view started to become a bit flimsy, and I came across other reasons for embracing the view that I now hold, which depicts that Christ preached by the Spirit to demonic spirits on His way to glory after His resurrection. Okay, And here are those reasons very quickly. First of all, the word for spirit in verse 19, when used in the plural, universally is a reference to angelic beings in the New Testament. Second, the word for prison. While it is used to refer to the place where human beings are incarcerated on earth, it is never used to describe a place of punishment for humans after death. It is used to describe a place of incarceration for 
evil spirits in the New Testament. For example, it's the word that's used of of Satan's incarceration in Revelation 20. Third, Jesus preaching through Noah to his contemporaries bears really no obvious relevance to this context. In other words, you can't really figure out why he would talk about that here. On the other hand, Jesus proclaiming victory over evil spirits fits very well with the present context, especially with verse 22 at the very end of the passage where he's declared to be in power over all angels, authorities, and powers. Makes sense then why he would... Why he would include this. Verse, I'm sorry, fourth, Jesus preaching through Noah fails to explain a Greek word that's used twice in this passage, but, in, but, but translated two different ways in two different verses. All right, so stick with me. Hang on here. There's one Greek word that's translated went in verse 19. The same word is translated has gone in verse 22. In verse 22, it indicates Jesus actually going somewhere to the right hand of God. It would be strange to use that same word and assign absolutely no meaning to it in verse 19. In what sense would Jesus have gone anywhere if He preached through Noah? It would seem to me that the the word has no meaning in verse 19 if He's preaching through Noah. Fifth, the phrase in verse 18, made alive by the Spirit, made alive by the Spirit indicates that the preaching of verse 19 is a post-resurrection event that would be impossible to reconcile with the notion of Christ preaching through Noah thousands of years earlier. Sixth, the text of Genesis 6 verses 1 through 4 appears to give a reason why these spirits were being punished. Verse 20 indicates that they were that they formerly disobeyed when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. If, if you'd like to turn to Genesis 6 with me, I'm going to read the, those first four verses there. If you know Genesis well, you know that Genesis 6 is where we begin that flood narrative, all right? This is how that chapter begins. Genesis 6, beginning in verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be a hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now the the sons of God is, is a reference to angelic beings. And we see this happening Numerous times in the Old Testament, one of them is in Job 1.6, where Satan is named among them. Sons of God, angelic beings. So these opening verses of Genesis 6 explain that angelic beings, this is hard for us to comprehend, but it's what the Word of God says, angelic beings had sexual relations with human women and procreated with them. Their offspring greatly contributed to the evil that covered the earth as described in the very next verse. That, that many of us know very well, Genesis 6-5, which reads, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In other words, it appears that demonic influence had pushed the sinfulness of man to the port where God decided to bring judgment through the flood. Such an influence certainly is not out of the question since 
That is, that is how sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Demonic influence. Satan comes and tempts man. So humankind is then deluged with a flood and these evil spirits were imprisoned. Now that understanding of Genesis 6, 1-4 was the standard Jewish, Jewish interpretation of Peter's day and seems to be reflected in Jude verse 6, which I'll read now. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So Jesus going and proclaiming to the spirits in verse 19 essentially refers to the same event of verse 22 in our present passage. Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Father, being installed in authority and victory over all angels and evil spirits, is Him preaching to preaching victory over these evil spirits. Okay, So this understands that, that Greek word, went in verse 19, and the same word has gone in 22. It understands them in the same sense. It also understands these spirits. The word spirit in verse 19 to refer to the same beings in verse 22. Jesus proclaimed victory over the spirits in prison by ascending to the Father and assuming His throne of authority over all beings. Now here's why the use of Noah and the flood works well for the point that Peter is making. In the days when God's patience waited, judgment was coming for all on the earth with the exception of this persecuted minority, Noah and his wife and his sons and their wives. All the other people on the earth were doomed, but according to Peter, eight persons were brought safely through water. Now Peter is writing this letter to a persecuted minority in the midst of a world facing impending judgment. And that persecuted minority is is facing temporary suffering, but they will be brought safely through the judgment. And a day is coming when their opponents will be put to shame, as Peter wrote in verse 16 of this chapter, and when they will be vindicated. So Peter uses this story of Noah to remind believers, hey, look, persevere. God saved Noah and his family when they were opposed by the whole world. He's going to do the same thing for you who are being persecuted. And that this is Peter's design is shown by verse 21. Look at verse 21 with me. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Noah was brought safely through judgment, so you are brought safely through judgment. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How does that work? Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Which corresponds to what? The antecedent of the word this is water in verse 20. Okay, so baptism corresponds to the water of verse 20. They were brought safely through water. Baptism corresponds to that water and saves you. But the water of that flood was a means of judgment. And we don't typically think of the baptismal waters as as a means of judgment, do we? But we should. We should think of it that way. Just as Noah and his family were saved in the midst of the act of God's judging the wicked, 
We are saved by God's bringing judgment upon Jesus on our behalf. Numerous times, Jesus described His impending passion, His suffering on our behalf as a what? A baptism. He he did that in Mark 10 and Luke 12. And so the, 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 the waters of the flood in Noah's day, they brought death. The waters of baptism, of Christ's suffering, they also brought death. In the flood, all the people on the earth were drowned. Water was an agent of death. So also baptism, immersion, takes place when somebody is, is placed underwater. And as, as Paul teaches in Romans chapter 6, our being plunged underwater represents death. He writes there, all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into His death. But, but the New Testament teaches that we, we, we survive this death Because we are baptized with Christ. You see, Christ is like that ark. We're we're placed inside of Him and He brings us safely through the waters of judgment. Now, we see this in Romans 6, 3-5. I'm going to read all three of those verses for you. If you want to write that down, you can. Romans 6, 3-5. There Paul writes, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. And that is what the physical act of baptism depicts, all right? We're baptized, we are saying to the church, by faith, I have died with Christ, I've been buried with Christ, I've been raised with Christ. We we survived death because of Christ's resurrection and because by faith we're we're joined to Him. That's the reason for this last clause in verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, when we we first read the beginning of verse 21, we, we get a little bit of heartburn, don't we? Baptism now saves you. Wow. That's troubling, isn't it? Baptism now saves you. And and there are those who would believe in something called baptismal regeneration. People who would take these words very literally and out of context, teaching that salvation comes by water baptism. They They would say that it is the act of being baptized that brings you to spiritual life. And Those who teach that doctrine do appeal to this verse to support it, but they shouldn't. Peter's very careful to explain here what occurs in baptism. He says baptism is not a removal of dirt from the body. And what he means by that is that baptism is not a merely physical act. It's not, it's not a mechanical or superficial thing. In order for one to be truly baptized, they must be a party to what baptism represents. And in the very next phrase, he tells us what, rep- what baptism represents. He says it's an appeal to God for a good conscience. In order for baptism to be baptism, the person being baptized must be making an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, what does that mean? The idea of a good conscience or a purified conscience is is a concept that that looms large in the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 9, the contrast is made between the inefficacious sacrifices of the old covenant on the one hand and the glorious blood of Christ on the other. 
the, the sacrifices of the earthly tabernacle, they were merely symbols which could not perfect the conscience. On the other hand, the blood of Christ, who through the Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purifies our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So blood is applied to us by faith in Christ Himself. The act of faith in Christ and the outward symbol of baptism are linked together in Hebrews 10.22, which we've already read this morning in our Scripture reading earlier in the service. I'll read it to you again. This is Hebrews 10.22. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. See, the, the blood of Christ sprinkles our hearts clean from an evil conscience. That's a reference to our by faith redemption in Jesus. The author of Hebrews doesn't equate that with baptism, but he, he connects the two. He refers to baptism with the words, having our bodies washed with pure water. And it makes sense to understand that, that Peter is doing the same thing. He's not equating these two things, but he's linking them together. Baptism represents a believer asking God on the basis of the shed blood of Christ and His resurrection to give them a clean conscience. So, if, if, if we back up, baptism saves you, not as a mechanical, physical ritual, but rather by what this ordinance represents which is our union with Christ through the forgiveness of sins, which Peter refers to here as a clean conscience. When a person being physically is being physically baptized, they are saying publicly, I have been joined to Christ. I've been joined to Christ by his, in His death, joined to Him in His burial, joined to Him in His resurrection, having appealed to God for a clean conscience, the forgiveness of sins. So anything that we might call baptism that does not represent an appeal for a clean conscience by a believer is not baptism. And this, this should correct our thinking on a number of things. And one thing that I'd like to address this morning specifically is the idea of re-baptism. Likely many of us have, have used that word in the case of someone who was baptized before they were a believer and the, by, then by the conviction of the Holy Spirit they come, came to understand that they, they were not truly converted earlier in their life and so then they, they repent and trust in Christ and out of obedience to the Scripture they are subsequently baptized again. Re-baptism. Right? But that is not a re-baptism because the first act was not a baptism. A baptism takes place when a believer is immersed, depicting an appeal to God for a clean conscience. That first act entailed a person dead in their trespasses and sins, getting wet in a public forum. It was not, it was not a baptism. So, just as Noah and his family were brought safely through water, a, a, a persecuted minority preserved from the judgment brought upon the world, so believers are baptized into Christ, saved from the judgment to come through His resurrection. So Christ's road from suffering to glory began with His suffering for our sins to bring us to God. Then by the Spirit, He was raised and declared victory over demonic spirits. Finally, He is now exalted in glory above all powers. He is now exalted in glory above all powers. 
Verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to Him? Now it may seem like Peter is, wow, he's finally getting back to his main point, but in truth he's been making it the whole time. We just have to be careful to understand it rightly. Nevertheless, verse 22 is much clearer. It's much easier to understand what he's getting at. Christ's suffering resulted in glory that should be, should be an assurance to us that our suffering will end in glory. In Acts chapter 1, Jesus ascended into heaven. In Acts chapter 2, Peter identified Jesus as the true figure of Psalm 16, and not just Psalm 16, but Psalm 110. The first verse of which reads this way, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so Peter preaches in Acts chapter 2 that Jesus now sits on the throne at the right hand of God with his enemies as his footstool. These these words, angels, authorities, powers, particularly those last two words, authorities and powers, those are words used repeatedly in the New Testament to refer to angelic beings, typically evil ones. Christ sits victorious over His enemies even now. Now, what does this have to do with us? Do you understand that the New Testament is not not a Christological textbook just giving us us naked truths for, for for our intellectual knowledge? This letter of 1 Peter is what we call an occasional letter. It is a letter written to a specific situation with information to in it that is intended to be understood so that it can be applied to life. So this truth about Jesus, what does it have to do with our lives? That is an essential question to ask here. Remember that that Peter spent a very significant last evening with Jesus himself. On the night before the Lord's crucifixion, Peter with the remaining ten disciples heard the Lord Jesus say, I go to prepare a place for you. Now for Peter, that is foundational theology, certainly. But it is intensely personal. It it is his anchor during the suffering of apostleship. And he offers it to us here as an anchor during the suffering of discipleship. In that upper room discourse that that we've had the privilege of studying here together last year or the year before. John 14.3, the Lord Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to Myself that where I am, you may be also. The fact that Jesus has gone before us and is right now installed in glory has everything to do with our future because of what Jesus said in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Consider the the love and generosity of Jesus. Listen, His suffering was never strictly about His own glory. Certainly, God has highly exalted the Lord Jesus Christ, and bestowed upon Him the name that's above every name, 
So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen. That's fantastic. And it makes us, it moves us to worship. But this too is beautiful. Jesus did not desire that glory to hoard, to clutch to himself in isolation for all eternity. And neither was it the design of the Father. But rather, by the wisdom of God, the suffering of Christ brought many sons to glory. And Jesus wanted to share that glory with us so badly that his last prayer was to that effect. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus suffered to secure that eternity for us. And by the power of the Spirit, he was raised from the dead. He declared victory over the forces of evil. He reigns in glory even now. Brothers and sisters, in your suffering at the present time, your suffering at the present time, Jesus reigns. He reigns over all hostile forces. He has not surrendered himself, and he will not hand us over to these hostile forces, even if we suffer unto death in this life. His pathway to glory ensures that those of faith, those who have been baptized into him, they will pass through the waters of judgment. They will follow him into glory, and we will reign together with him for all eternity. Now, that is only true for those who are in Christ. Not everybody on the earth in the days of Noah made it into that ark, did they? A precious few. What is the the pathway into the ark who is Jesus Christ? How does one benefit from his death on the cross and his resurrection? How is that atonement applied to the life of a sinner so that they pass through the judgment to come? The New Testament says that if you would follow Jesus Christ, you must repent of your sin. That means turn away from your sinfulness, saying, I don't want that anymore. I just want Jesus. I want him as my Lord, my master. And trust in Him. Repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus saying, Before God alone, my plea is the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ speaks for me before the throne of God above. I have nothing to offer God but what Jesus has done for me. That is faith in Jesus Christ. Repent. Trust in Jesus. And you will pass through the waters of judgment unto eternity with this risen Christ on the last day. If you have any questions about that, you have people sitting around you who can answer those questions. The elders would love to talk to you as well. Do not leave this building with unanswered questions about these things. Let's pray together.
Father, we are grateful for this sweet Jesus who offered us sanctuary from judgment. We praise you for this, and we ask, Father, that you would help us to keep in mind these things that we've seen this morning as we continue to be buffeted by suffering in this life. Help us to keep our eyes on not only the suffering of Jesus, but his resurrection and his ascension to glory where he now sits enthroned above all of his enemies, all of our enemies, ensuring that we will, we will follow him one day. We will be vindicated. We pray, Lord, that, that these things would be on our minds and hearts during the difficult days of the present and the future. That we would be moved to great affection for him. That we would be moved to, to a, a willingness to suffer in any way to make his name known in this world, that others might be plunged into him and be saved so that the number of worshipers in the last day would multiply. If there are those in this room, Father, who do not know the Lord Jesus, who are outside of Christ and therefore who are staring those waters of judgment in the face, so pray, Lord, that you would bring them under conviction right now, that you would do that gracious thing for them. Help them to feel the weight of their sin in this moment, their hopelessness before you. Grant them to be grieved over their sin, terrified of judgment. Help them to see the beauty of Jesus, this glorious and strong Christ who bore the sin of the world that we might be saved. Move them to repentance and faith, Lord that they might be saved. We ask these things in His name. Amen. Jesus.